I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Corbin Addison, who's John Grisham's writing protege, about his new book, Wastelands, The True Story of Farm Country on Trial, which came out June 7, 2022. John Grisham wrote the foreword to the book, and he ends his foreword with these words, beautifully written, impeccably researched, and told with the air of suspense that few writers can handle. Wastelands is a story I wish I had written. We did this interview as a program for the Dallas Bar Association in front of a live audience on June 9, 2022. Enjoy. So, yeah, 
This actually uh, would cover road six inches deep, running all the way from the Raleigh Courthouse up to RDU Airport, and then circle the terminal three times. Now, I didn't do that quite as well as, uh, as Mike did in his opening, but um, what is this? Actually, I didn't trim this. I've got, I've got a shorter version, but nevertheless, you know what? I think that's, I think that's it. So that's kind of the inside of a, of a hog operation. Um, and, and one of the other things, maybe we'll just, you want, you want to dive into Jimmy's story? That's what I'm going to say. So those were the hog farm, quote, farms with all these hogs and all this hog waste. And so what kind of problems did that cause for people uh, on the nearby properties? Right, so I mean, the thing about the hog industry is that, or at least the industrial hog industry, is that it, it exploded as tobacco waned. And, uh, you know, it, it was in many ways for many small farmers uh, who had really kind of run tobacco into the ground. They, they weren't making money, they wanted to hang on to their, their land. And, and along came a man named Wendell Murphy, and Wendell Murphy offered him a contract, and a, you know, he invented the 1224 barn. And to a lot of these farmers, it was kind of, it was a salvation. And for them, it was a way to stabilize their income, and um, they loved him. And, and frankly, the, uh, the, really the entirety, the economic engine uh, of Eastern North Carolina became the hog industry. And, and so, in many ways, like, he was the hometown hero, you know, the boy made good. The challenge is that there were people living here before these things came. The industry, in fact, I've got a, a, a different slide I'll show, I think maybe after, right after I showed Jimmy's story. Um, the industry exploded and, and went to having more than 2,000 of these hog farms by the, the 1990s. And, and so, you know, there was, there was really, in, look, Eastern North Carolina is, is the home of the Black Belt, and it has a certain very real, palpable history of racism. But in speaking to a lot of folks who ended up bringing suit, you know, they talked about how there was relative peace in Eastern North Carolina before the industry came. But when the industry proliferated, it created some real problems for people living around because what do you do with all that waste in Hurricane Alley? I mean, imagine, obviously there's a capacity and those hogs don't go away, they just keep producing. And the idea is to keep the barns producing, you know, night and day, 365 days a year. You've got to do something with that waste after it collects in the lagoon and what you do, and we'll see a, a, an image, a video of this in a minute, is they spray it out on the fields with these gigantic guns. At least that was the original technology. So imagine, and we'll see, see in a moment, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Jacobs is, uh, was a neighborhood gardener in one of these communities, and I'll let you tell his story about how it affected him. I'm here in the garden, I'm Chopping them out, putting dirt to them. Uh, That's just something I love to do. I grew up with two neighbors, Oakley, most of all, Collin. Uh, it'll be a long about Thanksgiving, it'll be ready. Uh, in that video right there. 
free that we are of this. And then from the wind blew it and just broke that full gravity of oh, that tower up. Sometime I have to quit. That's waste. This may not be so strong. The wind blew it this way. That fog, that mixture of fog coming off of it, blows over here. It's all on the glasses. I just quit and go inside until it gets finished. So this is uh, an animation of showing how the industry had exploded from 1972 to 1997. And in 1997, the, the state government actually finally acted after a long, long, long time of dragging its feet. So you have over 2,000 of these CAFOs, and that's you know at least one lagoon in every, every one of those dots, and in some cases, multiple lagoons. And every single one of those is, you know, I shouldn't say everyone, but many of them are surrounded by neighborhoods of people like Jimmy Jacobs, who, you know, have roots on the land in many cases. I mean, there are a few who have come more recently, but a lot of these neighborhoods have roots on the land that are generational. I mean, there were some that I profile in the book that actually trace their, their lineage back into the slave days on this very dirt, and that the people, their grandparents and great-grandparents after emancipation managed to acquire land right in the same area. And that was their heritage, and they held on to that land over the course of generations. And then the hog industry took over, and they had to deal with what Jimmy Jacobs had to deal with. Now, he just talked about the spray. The reality is that there were a lot of other elements of the nuisance, and we had more time to show you more of that, but so they were trucks that would come by. So Jimmy actually lived literally next door, I mean, within feet away from the entrance road to a, a giant hog farm. And the trucks would come, Smithfield would send these trucks at all hours of the day and night. And I mean, Jimmy told me stories, he told the jury stories of being woken up multiple times a night uh, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., these trucks, they come and they're gigantic trucks and they're collecting hogs or they're, or they're depositing hogs or they're collecting the dead hogs, the dead trucks would come. And, and they, you know, and they were so loud. I mean, the, the trial team had videos of this. They stopped, actually, they had, uh, you know, both trial team members who were down doing stakeouts at night in order to capture the trucks. And they also had deer cams to capture the trucks, show the videos of, you know, there was one farm I remember in a different neighborhood where I think it was a dozen different trucks one night had actually come between the, the hours of darkness. I mean, can you imagine living right next door to that? And, you know, so that there, were, there, were the, there was the spray, there, was, there were the trucks, there were buzzards and flies and, you know, the kind of thing you can imagine happening if you have carcasses lying around, um, you know, these, uh, they basically would put the dead hogs into a, a dead box, and the dead box was nothing more than basically a, an oversized dumpster, again, open to the sky. Can you imagine what happens when you have, you know, hogs rotting? So there, there were a lot of different dimensions of the, of the nuisance, 
the odor was probably the worst. I mean, there were health effects as well, but those were actually left out intentionally by the trial team. I mean, there were mention of them in front of the jury, but in order to avoid the challenge of trying to prove that it was the hog waste that caused these health effects versus other things, they didn't, the trial team didn't focus on those, but those were also a part of the story. So not only is this book a, a legal thriller uh, and also a legal instruction manual from my perspective, it's the best book I've ever read about how to try a lawsuit uh, by great lawyers uh, from choosing the, the court, federal court, jury selection, opening statement, cross-sex, direct examination, closing. If you got young lawyers at your firm who want to know how the, how the greats do it, this, this is the book. But not only is it the legal side of this book, but there's also the political side. So yes, you've got all these farms, and Smithfield is the multi-billion dollar pork giant who entered into contracts with all these little family farms and built all these barns and had all these hogs. Uh, how did, what kinds of things did Smithfield do in order to maintain political control so that they could continue to do what they did to these uh, neighbors? Yeah, so if we, if we start looking at this back in the 1980s and 90s uh, when the industry was exploding, Wendell Murphy, who was kind of the godfather of the modern hog industry, uh, after establishing himself um, in business, went into the legislature. And, and this is part of the story that came out in the trials. Uh, he had succeeded in, in getting a lot of measures passed in order to kind of protect the industry. Uh, he'd also made a lot of friends, had a lot of influence. Uh, during the 1990s, the only legislator, there was only one legislator who was willing to pay any attention whatsoever to the complaints of the neighbors. I mean, the neighbors were complaining. They were complaining in any way they could. But, you know, the representatives knew where the contributions came from, knew where the economic and tax base came from, and they focused far more on serving the industry than they did serving particularly, you know, uh, black people, the people of modest means. Um, not shocking. There was one legislator by, by the name of Sidney Watson, and who in the 19 or the, the 1990s, she was thrown into and uh, into power on the 94 Gingrich Revolution. She was a uh, at least in the state house. She was a you know dyed-in-the-wool Republican, pro-business. Uh, but that didn't mean she didn't have a conscience. And in fact, she had a deep conscience. And so she went out one day and met with one of the neighbors who, uh, Elsie Heron, who became, she was really the pioneering neighbor activist. And Elsie told her a story and Cindy saw the hog farm next door and the big gun sitting in the field right next door, I mean, within yards of Elsie's mother's house and, and heard the fact that, you know, Elsie's grandfather had acquired this land after having been enslaved on it. And she was like, you know what, I've got to do something. So she took Elsie's complaint to the state house and got shut down to the point where one lobbyist even told her, hey, Cindy, we know you're right. We know there's a problem here, but I get paid quite a bit of money by those five families. They were the press of the Wendell Murphy plus four other families. I mean, it sounds like the mafia, right? I mean, it's actually kind of weird that there were five families that owned all the pork, you know, down east. 
And in the lobby of Sydney down there were just these five families paying us a lot of money to keep anything from happening. That would make, you know, the industry do anything to address the issue. So Sandy kept pressing, nobody paid any attention until one day in 1997, a hog farmer had the bright idea of trying to place a new hog farm right up the road from Pinehurst. <laughs> now you can imagine what happened when the good old boys in the North Carolina legislature heard about that. Instantaneously, Cindy Watson had all kinds of phone calls. The governor was interested. I mean, in fact, the governor went up to her. She had been asking for a one-year moratorium on new hog farm construction. He was like, why not two years? I mean, can you imagine after, you know, I mean, Elsie had been complaining since the early 1990s. I mean, others since the 80s. So eventually, you know, Pinehurst, what Pinehurst did, and that's why this uh, graphic freezes in 1997. It basically froze in existence all of the lagoons and spray fields and hog farms that had been built to that point. And there really no more have been built, to my knowledge. But what the moratorium did not address is what would happen to the existing infrastructure, which was the cause of the whole problem. And Cindy Watson, for her uh, trouble, the industry mounted a campaign uh, that they spent millions of dollars on to oust her in a Republican primary in the next election. And she lost to a hog farmer by a handful of votes. So Cindy Watson got sent packing, but at least she got her moratorium. The challenge was that after that, uh, you know, the, like I said, the existing uh, infrastructure was the issue. In 99, Mother Nature had something to say about the existing infrastructure. Hurricane Floyd came and dumped feet of water on those lagoons and spray fields, and you can imagine what happened when the rivers ran with hogways, right? Billions of fish died. There were pictures of sludge floating around, pictures of hogs on top of hog sheds, the ones that survived and weren't drowned. So after that, suddenly the legislature said, okay, actually it was the governor and the state AG, okay, we, uh, we're gonna do something. Now they could have come after, by then, basically the industry had largely consolidated under the Smithfield banner. In 2000, Joe Luter and Smithfield acquired Murphy, uh, and Murphy was the largest producer at that time, Smithfield was the largest packer at that time. So Smithfield became, you know, the, the kingpin. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess the AG could have gone after Smithfield, could have brought any number of different state regulatory violations. I mean, sued them, and, you know, uh, under EPA regulation. I mean, there are all kinds of things you can do if you want to clean up what's going on. Well, they didn't do any of that stuff. They negotiated uh, what turned out to be a pretty, a sweetheart deal with Smithfield, called the Smithfield Agreement. And the Smithfield Agreement required Smithfield to pay initially $15 million. Turned out that they ended up paying more, and I think it was maybe $25 million over the course of 10 years. The goal, at least ostensibly, was to replace the lagoons and spray fields with a new technology. So they got NC State uh, scientists to do what scientists do, come up with something uh, that was environmentally uh, feasible and would take care of the problem, the odor problem, take care of runoff, take care of all that. 
that would be te technically uh, feasible as well that could be implemented by uh, you know by the farmers and, uh, and by the industry and then also be economically feasible but in that third and you can imagine this right in that third qualification economic feasibility it was this really fuzzy question of what would be economically feasible so there was a committee that was set up to, to study the different technologies that the scientists would produce the economic subcommittee was stocked with industry people and they ultimately decided even after it was determined that there were technologies that would solve the problem and could be implemented. And in the end, uh, the third generation of something called super soils was a whole lot less expensive than the first generation. The economic subcommittee and basically the industry people on it said, we will not pay $1 more to implement this new technology. If it costs us more than our medieval uh, cesspools and spray fields, we will not accept this or be bound by the Smithfield Agreement. And to this day, to this day, the industry has never implemented that. I believe that there was one experimental farm that uh, various people talked about in the trials, but it was never implemented in the way that Smithfield, the Smithfield Agreement imagined. So in reality, what you have here is you have a state house that even into the trials, and we can get into this, uh, is, you know, for all intents and purposes, what I'm paying for, and I'm not talking in a criminal way, I'm just talking about the way that, you know, money talks in politics, and the way that local government and state officials uh, go where the money goes, and where the money tells them to go, and it takes a lot of courage to go against that stream, and the stream in the North Carolina State House for a long, 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 long time has been one with rare exceptions that has always been flowing in the direction that Smithfield and the industry wants it to flow in. So the people realized that the political system was not going to help them at all. Uh, none of the nonprofits were in a position to do anything positive. So the only way to move forward was with the litigation. And so, since we're here with the business litigation section, as well as lawyers and other sections, let's talk about the trial trials, I should say, although many of them followed a, a similar pattern, some are experts, some are witnesses, but uh, you, Mike Kesby, I mentioned the lead trial counsel, what were some of the things you, a lawyer who practiced law, observed in the trials that, that stood out as being truly exceptional, kind of state-of-the-art in how to persuade a jury in a, in a complicated case with complicated facts and scientific experts. What were the, the high points of those trials from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, beyond, beyond the opening, I mean, I, th I think one of the things that really struck me as I dived into this, as I got to know the trial team, as I got to know a lot of the people in the community, I got to know some of the witnesses, and particularly expert witnesses, was just the extent of preparation. I mean, I, you know, you have to prepare for trial, but there's a level of preparation that goes beyond, and that's something that I credit this trial team and Mike Heskey and Lisa and Mona Lisa Wallace with being nothing if not thoroughly prepared. Um, they had come up with some really creative ways to reveal the nuisance to the jury. So I, mean, I talked about the deer cams and the nighttime stakeouts to capture the trucks. 
Um, you know, they got tons of aerial footage uh, of the hog farms, nothing like seeing them from above. Um, I mean, they did get footage inside the barns. That was one of the things that, you know, Smithfield desperately, desperately wanted to keep the trial team out of their barns and wanted to shape the narrative so that, and in fact, you know, there was evidence that came out in one of the cases that, of course, you know, the visits were scheduled on the calendar and, you know, nobody was ever able to prove exactly how it worked, but just so happened that before a particular visit, Smithfield depopulated one of the barns, uh, you know, or, or one side of, of a hog farm so that it had half the number of hogs in it. I mean, just things like that. Uh, you know, one hog farmer uh, was observed uh, after clearly having stayed up all night scrubbing the inside of his hog farm and cleaning all of his animals uh, so that they looked, you know, like little Wilbur's. Um, but the longer the trial team spent inside the barns, well, the animals did what they did and ultimately ended up looking a whole lot less pink. Um, but there was one particular barn, and I've got a video here to show you. I'm glad no one's eating anymore. Um, so remember, there is no dirt inside a hog farm. This was from the Greenwood facility in uh, Pender County. One note I will I will say in favor of uh, of these hogs is that it's very easy to kind of imagine them to be gross creatures. In reality, the average hog is smarter than the average dog, and many of us have pets. I do. I just cannot imagine cannot imagine treating uh, Finnegan like that. And yet, that was the way a lot of these barns looked. Uh, especially as the days progressed. They were able to go inside the barns, they were able to collect this sort of, uh, you know, footage. Um, but one of the great challenges that they had is, unlike the testimony, I mean, they had the testimony of people like Jimmy Jacobs about the odor, but unlike a lot of different phenomena that you try to recreate in a courtroom, Smell may be the hardest of the five senses to try to recreate. You can't bring a vial of lagoon water into the courtroom because it's, it's not going to smell. It's not, certainly not going to smell like it does from the neighboring properties. It may actually, on that day, be mostly rainwater. You have no idea. Uh, it, you know, it's not going to be what's being sprayed up in the air. There's no way to do that. Smithfield really wanted to uh, get the judge to have a jury view. And, and they argued to really the, the trial lawyers uh, from McGuire Woods, which did, and I understand there's a McGuire Woods lawyer here, and I actually uh, have great respect for the trial lawyers in McGuire Woods. They, they had a very hard case and a very hard client, um, but they were good lawyers. They made the arguments they needed to make. They, won, they said, you know, we should have a jury view. The judge ultimately found, and I think rightly, that the problem with the jury view is that it is not spontaneous and that you have no idea what the weather will be. And every single person who lives beside a hog farm testified that everything depends on the weather. What smell there is in the air and everything depends upon the weather and the spray patterns 
and what just happens to be in the atmosphere at that moment. You have no way of predicting it. And, and so a jury view would have done really nothing. You could never have imagined getting exactly the right moment to say, okay, jurors, you can go out and see what Jimmy Jacobs experienced over the course of decades. So one of the things that the trial team had to do is figure out a way to bring odor or an odor uh, proxy into the courtroom. And they did that by finding a scientist by the name of Shane Rogers from Clarkson University in Northern New York. And Shane is a former EPA guy. And he, you know, I think of him as a, a fate and transport uh, a chemical engineer. Uh, fate and transport is the, is the fancy way of, of talking about the way that chemicals and particulates that carry odor move through the air. So Shane had this really interesting idea. He said, you know, there's this DNA marker that we can test for, and it's called pig to bath. And it, it basically is produced in the environment of the hog guts, and it is only found in the excretions of the hog. Like you cannot find pig to back anywhere there is not hog feces or was not hog feces. He said, so if we could test for pig to back in the communities of these plaintiffs, and if we found pig to back around the neighbors' homes, we could logically infer that there was hog feces there too at one point. And then we can leave the jurors to infer that the presence of hog feces usually is not, uh, or doesn't lack a scent. I mean, there's, it usually stinks when, there, when there's hog feces around. So there was a, they, they actually went out and tested, uh, there was a, the trial team went out and tested in all the communities and lo and behold, there was pig tobacco everywhere, all around. It was on walls and it was on rooftops and it was even in one woman's kitchen on her refrigerator and countertop. Can you imagine? So there, there was an animation that the trial team produced to show pig tobacco, the way that this works for the jury. And I remember seeing this in the opening and thinking, this is really graphic and vivid. <laughs> it's fantastic. So some of it just naturally goes up and, you know, into the atmosphere. I'll show you a video in a minute of that happening. Some of it goes out into the lagoon and then evaporates. All odor is carried on particles in the air, invisible to us, but, but you know, our noses send them uh, or detect them. And then some of it's sprayed out onto the ground. I mean, a lot of it falls down, but some of it stays up in the air and drifts on the wind. And then ends up coming to rest on things like trees and bicycles and car tops and clotheslines and children's uh, playsets. I mean, they were able to detect pig to bat in virtually all of the homes they tested. But there were a few they did not, which actually then proved, uh, you know, scientifically, well, look, you know, this is a good study because you would expect that there would be some that would not have evidence, but virtually all of them did. And this, you can imagine showing this to a jury after having Shane testify. You know, one trial he testified for four straight days. He was cross-examined for two and a half days. 
And if I remember correctly, Mike, uh, you told me that he was the best witness you'd ever seen. Is that right? One of the best witnesses, yeah. So she and Roger, what's that? Yeah, there you go. And they became very good friends. Uh, and so in any event, Shane was able to, to kind of bring the scent alive, bring the odor alive by defining it down into particles and saying, look, where pig back is, there was hog feces, where hog feces is, so there is stink. There was another thing they were able to do. They hired uh, a National Geographic videographer to go out in the communities. He was the one who put together the Jimmy Jacobs video. Uh, but he was actually able on one of the farms to capture something that no one expected. It was a video of the air leaving the barn, the particles of moisture lifting up into the air from the hog barns. And they were able to show this to the jury. It was on a particularly humid day with rain. And they brought it alive. I mean, any, anyone can look at that and say, yeah, okay, I get it. Especially after I saw Shane Rogers testify about pig to back. We can understand this drifts on the wind. And then we can listen to, you know, the testimony of the neighbors and hear their experiences. So I think the thing that really struck me most is how the trial team took some, a really difficult scent, smell, and brought it to life in many different dimensions with very vivid testimony and also some really, really vivid animations and videos. Yeah, I said McGuire Woods had a difficult climb. They were trying to present the argument that shit doesn't stink, uh, which is a very difficult argument to make. Uh, we've talked about the great uh, trial results, five of them in a row, but obviously uh, you don't win against a multi-billion dollar company who I found out last night in defense of these cases spent somewhere between 70 and 100 million dollars. Uh, but you don't ultimately prevail unless you prevail on people. So what happened after the first big judgment, which involved millions of dollars, one as big as the third one, which was a half a billion, but uh, the case went up to the United States Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the book, just how that all played out. Yeah, I, I, hate, I hate giving away endings. Um, so I'm gonna try it. I'm going to try to, you know, goose step around uh, giving you exactly, you know, what happened. But, but what I can say is that I was there in the courtroom in the Fourth Circuit in January of 2020 with the trial team and with so many people from down east that had come, on both sides, really. I've never seen a, an appellate courtroom packed like that. It was like the trial court. And uh, we had drawn a panel. I say we, really. I mean, the trial team had drawn a panel that was looking pretty favorable to the defense. Uh, a couple of very conservative judges, including one uh, you know, who was shortlisted for the Supreme Court, J. Harvey Wilkinson, uh, a conservative lion, and you know, very much a, a pro-business conservative. Now, you don't know how appellate judges are gonna, going to rule. Um, you don't, and sometimes they surprise you. But at the same time, sometimes they surprise you. At the same time, you know, you get a panel and you, and you think this is uh, maybe not ideal. And, and 
there was one reason that they had to believe that the panel was already miffed with Judge Britt, and that is, and we didn't talk about this, but I go into this in the book, um, the trials produced a kind of unprecedented public furor in Eastern North Carolina, uh, to the point where there were death threats made uh, to Mike, um, he was called out by industry surrogates, NC Farm families, which was a basically a, uh, a gra it looked like a grassroots organization, but it was created by Smithfield in order to rally the growers in the fight. And they had uh, they had managed to um, really stir up, you know, uh, dissension in you know the industry. And you know, a lot of the growers were afraid for their livelihoods. They thought, you know, these trial lawyers were coming for them, even though they weren't on the other side of the V. And so after the, it was actually after the second trial, I mean, there were public rallies, the legislature got involved, changed the definition of nuisance, tried to kill the, the cases in midstream. And so after the death threats, um, and after just and after there was witness intimidation, and it was obvious that I mean there were signs planted in yards down east that were obviously intimidating. Things like <clears throat> you know keep them making bacon, shut up or move. I mean you can imagine you know black people uh, who have found the courage to sue the largest employer in the area. Uh, you know, seeing these yard signs in the yards of the big farms around them. Um, There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear, and, and it was very justified. And so Judge Britton had actually entered a, a kind of partial gag order, um, which was immediately appealed by on a writ of mandamus. And the same panel that heard the appeal, the main appeal, had already ruled on the gag order in a very uh, scathing way. I mean, Harvey Wilkinson is well known for holding forth from the bench in the middle of the argument, and he had basically lit his hair on fire about the First Amendment problem of a gag order. So when the trial team stepped foot in the Richmond courthouse and saw they had drawn the same panel, uh, they thought, you know, the chances of us winning here especially with, I think, there was somewhere, somewhere between seven and nine points of appeal that were raised by Smithfield. You know, and the Fourth Circuit is, is you know, a very conservative court and, and very, you know, uh, it, it just looked like this was not ideal for, for them. Um, so there's a lot of concern, but what ultimately happened blew my mind, blew the minds of everyone, uh, on the plaintiff's side, I'm sure blew the minds of everyone on the defense side. Um, and, and what ultimately landed in the decision that took nearly a year to write um, was a, an opinion for the ages. And it was such a delight to get to witness history as it unfolded. So that's as far as I'm gonna go. <laughs> I gave you basically the ending, but I didn't give you the detail. Well, for, for my last question, uh, what's been the net result of all these uh, very successful results for these plaintiffs? And uh, I think you said enough for us to know there was a successful appeal. Uh, 
How has it played out in the lives of the, of the plaintiffs and, and, and the communities? You know, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, the settlement, of course, that came out of that, it's only public to the extent that it happened. And I have no idea what the terms are. Nobody's ever shared them with me. They shouldn't have. It was confidential. It's never come out in the media. So I don't know what the numbers were. I don't know if there were non-monetary terms that were attached. I do know in the trials, uh, in the fourth trial, um, there was a lot of talk about things that Smithfield had done. Uh, after the gigantic verdict of the third trial, they had refrigerated their, their dead boxes uh, and closed them. They had stopped the nighttime truck runs. Uh, you know, they, they, they seemed to show some concern, um, at least in the middle of litigation. They also said that they were going to cover a lot of their lagoons. And oh, by the way, that, that was going to make them money because they could turn it into biogas. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, the kind of story here is that Smithfield's approach has been since 2000 with the Smithfield Agreement that they'll pay money and invest in things when it's going to make them money. But if it's just a cost of doing business, then they're not going to spend it unless they're forced to. So what was interesting is that the, the trial outcomes did lead Smithfield to do certain things for the communities that, that were at issue in the five bellwethers. Um, no one ever asked Smithfield to take the hogs away. No neighbor, not a single person I ever spoke to said, we want the industry to shut down. We want the hog farmers to lose their shirts. We want the hogs to go away. Not one person said that. They, ne they never said we want it to go back to the way it was before these barns kind of landed like alien ships from the sky. Like, they just wanted the industry to do what they promised to do 20 years ago with the Smithfield Agreement and clean up the land. Just get rid of the lagoons and spray fields. That's what they wanted. Well, interestingly, Smithfield decided, because they're the contract party, they decided to depopulate all of the hog farms that lost the trials. Now, why they did that? They claimed in the Court of Appeals they were forced to by the contract, but you and I both know that if you have a contract provision that is uh, yours to enforce, you absolutely have the discretion whether or not to enforce it. They absolutely could have gone on doing business. There is nothing in the law that would have said, at least as far as I'm concerned, that would have said that they were uh, prevented from continuing to do business with those hog farmers. What's really interesting, though, is the stories of the plaintiffs from those communities, and I saw a couple of them last night at our, our event in Raleigh, those communities where the hogs aren't anymore, instantaneously, I mean literally instantaneously, overnight, problem gone. No more trucks, no more spray, no more odor. It was like, it was like the world returned to 30 years ago. And to hear them tell that is really a profound thing, that they actually got their clean air back. But it's sad on one level because, you know, no one ever said that the industry should shut down. And frankly, look, Smithfield does a good thing. As a matter of fact, they help feed the world. Uh, a lot of businesses do good things and have unfortunate byproducts of their business model. And the good businesses, and I say that as a moral judgment, not as a legal judgment, but 
The good businesses, the good neighbors, are the ones that clean up their act when they have, when they're forced to, and when they're given an opportunity, when they see the truth of what is happening. And and unfortunately, what Smithfield decided to do was, you know, we'll depopulate the barns of the of the neighbors, you know, that actually won their cases. But the twenty there are twenty six communities and hundreds of neighbors that were part of these lawsuits. The other ones, you know, continue to this day operating as before. There have been some changes. So, like as I mentioned, the dead boxes are now refrigerated. I, I forgot to mention there's a low, a lower odor spray thing that they use called an airway tractor that helps cut down. Uh, so that's been deployed in certain places. And maybe, and I don't know this, maybe per the settlement there are other things that are coming. I hope. Um, but in the end, I mean, there was compensation had, which is a good thing, uh, you know, for, for the challenges that these people had faced. And, and I think what the litigation proved is that even a multi-billion dollar Chinese-owned conglomerate with parachutes for pockets and incredibly capable attorneys on the other side had a day of reckoning um, when people down east had the courage to speak their truth to power against all odds and had an incredibly cracked team of trial lawyers who had the resources and the heart to carry this thing for seven years and see it through to the end. Okay, many of you have bought books, some of you have not. Uh, Interrobang is outside. Corbin's gonna be up here uh, yesterday, Corbin told me, uh, the New York Times Review came out, and this almost never happens. There was not one negative thing said about the book. It was 100% positive. I've read the book. It's, it's A-plus nonfiction. It can be an A-plus novel, uh, and particularly among the legal community. Uh, it makes us all uh, mindful, and, and we need to be reminded of the really great things that the lawyers can do for a great cause to help people out uh, in need of help. So, uh, Father's Day is not far away. Uh, uh, so, if you have uh, anybody who loves great, you know, you saw John Grisham's endorsement, Jonathan Haar, who wrote Civil Action, huge endorsement, New York Times Review, either this Sunday or next Sunday in the print edition. Uh, you don't want to miss it. So, thank you all who have already bought the book. Maybe you'll think about getting additional copies. Those of you who haven't, Corbin's happy to sign them. But, uh, Corbin, thanks for coming to Dallas. Hey, thank you very much. Corbin Addison is a rising star among American writers. He's shown he's great at writing fiction and nonfiction. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley and Norton. Thanks for listening.